Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I am your host, Massimo Pigliucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Gellif. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Well, Massimo, today I am pleased to introduce our special guest, Ken Fraser. Ken is a science writer and longtime editor of Skeptical Inquirer magazine. He's also a former editor of Science News, um, has written and edited 10 books, and is a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science and the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. Ken, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. I'm very honored to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. So you are basically, being the editor of Skeptical Inquirer, you're essentially, in my mind, sort of a, a, a skeptic at large. You, you see all sorts of stuff crossing your desk about um, people that write about skepticism, right? And, and you've been doing this for a long time. How, how long at, at this point? Well, I, I hate to say it because I'm, <laughs> I think I'm but I, I've been doing it now for 37 years. It'll be in August. Wow. So, wow. Ken, you've, you've been essentially... You've been one of the people shaping the direction of the skeptic movement by, among other things, choosing which topics to cover in, in Skeptical Inquirer, which is kind of a cornerstone of the movement. Uh, yes, it's a, it's a serious um, uh, set of uh, obligation, I guess, uh, to, to be in that position. I take it seriously. Uh, I, I consider science and skepticism uh, a, a very serious and productive and intellectually vital topic, and also one uh, where we do uh, communicate with the public and I think help them sort the fact from fiction and information, good information from misinformation, and good science from bad science. Now, uh, right there, you mentioned uh, uh, two words that uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use as, as sort of my first question, which is, you know, science and skepticism. Uh, as you know, there is, there's disagreements about, uh, in, within the broader skeptical community, um, about what the relationship is between science and skepticism. There's some people that essentially say they're synonymous, they're the same thing. Other people that make distinction. What, what's your take on it? Well, I consider uh, skepticism as a part of science. It's uh, one of the, of the many excellent attributes of science. Uh, I think you can have skepticism and, and not be uh, doing it scientifically, but uh, nevertheless, scientific thinking uh, has a very strong arm of skepticism, along with its uh, creative uh, aspects. But, but skepticism also, in, as, it, as it's understood you know, by, I assume, readers of Skeptical Inquiry and other similar magazines, is sometimes actually broader than science, right? I mean, there, there are certain things like, even, even classical skeptic uh, topics such as, you know, UFOs or parapsychology and things like that, typically actually scientists don't do that, right? They, they don't actually do research or inquiry into that. It, uh, and so, it, it, would that suggest that um, skepticism as a type of inquiry is actually broader than science, sort of, uh, instead of a, a part? I mean, I agree with you that it's an important component of doing science, clearly. Um, but I'm wondering about uh, when it applies to things that are actually not directly scientific topics. Well, yeah, I consider uh, skepticism as sort of uh, organized common sense, which has also been a definition of science, uh, to, uh, uh, an unsatisfactory one. But you can apply skepticism to any aspect of, of life. 
uh, in the Skeptical Inquirer, we have somewhat limited our concerns to matters of empirical claims, which basically generally involve science. But uh, you are very right that most scientists, most working scientists, don't have either the time or the inclination to deal with uh, the public's um, uh, uh, fascinations and misunderstandings of things that have something to do with science. And so uh, our role all along has been to fill a gap that scientists, although they may wish they could, generally don't take the time or have the time to... Uh, do any organized investigation, which may result in a debunking or may not, may actually turn up something new, uh, and uh, communicating and educating the public on these matters. But one of the things we have done is popularized the idea that good scientists should devote a certain amount of their time to this public education and public communication effort. It's very important yeah, th this uh, this position that the skeptic movement and magazines like Skeptical Inquirer have occupied, to me, one of the strong points, or maybe like the best reason to occupy that niche, is I've been hoping to serve as a gateway for people who maybe weren't that interested in science or the scientific method or you know critical thinking, but are actually really interested in astrology or UFOs or whatever. Pick your poison. Whether that's you know, from a sort of curious standpoint or from a, this is so irritating, I want to talk to other people who like debunking this standpoint. And my hope, although I really don't have a good sense of how much this is in fact the case, is that the the critical thinking tools, the sort of scientific methodology discussed in the skeptic movement, um, you know, will sort of, the people who come in wanting to just talk about astrology and UFOs will start to like apply those tools to other things, maybe maybe not in their everyday life, maybe you know when they read a news article or see like statistical claims in a in science news or something like that. So I was hoping that you know occupying this role could serve as a way to sort of spread scientific thinking in the public. Can do you have any sense of whether that's in fact happening? I think it happens to some degree, and that is certainly our hope as well. Uh, we, we, we have a, a large variety of different kinds of, of readers of Skeptical Inquirer. Uh, many of them are scholars and academics and scientists and science-oriented people who are concerned about public misunderstanding. On the other hand, you have a, a large amount of members of the public who are just curious and interested in certain claims, things they've heard about, things they may have passions about, but don't have access to good scientific information and good, and don't understand the methodologies of science to help sort uh, sort through the all, all the wheat from the chaff in these areas. Mm -hmm. So that's what we hope we do. Whether whether that succeeds or not, well, I think we do. I think we get a number of letters from uh, our readers who thank us for for uh, pointing out. Uh, points of view about things they had gotten caught up in that they weren't aware of and for providing solutions to uh, to mysteries uh, that they had no means of investigating themselves. So, Ken, speaking of letters that Skeptical Inquiry gets um, uh, in, uh, on, on a variety of topics, so I remember that not that long ago, uh, you guys got a, a, a large number of, of complaints from readers of, of uh, regular readers of Skeptical Inquiries because you happened to do a special issue on uh, climate change, to which, in fact, I contributed a, a small entry. What was that all about? 
Well, since 2007, we have been embroiled in the, quote, climate change controversy. Of course, like evolution, there is not a whole lot of controversy about climate change within the scientific community of climate scientists. Uh, they accept the, the findings uh, that the Earth is warming and, uh, and uh, it will continue to do so. Uh, due to the rise of greenhouse gases. Right. But we have discovered uh, a large number of people in the United States particularly, and including among some of our readers and among those, some of them who are members of the skeptic community, uh, feel otherwise. And uh, this is not unique to our magazine. All science magazines, science-oriented magazines, have encountered this conflict with their readers on the issue of climate change. So I think it's uh, a matter of ideological predispositions that are preventing otherwise uh, good and intelligent people from... Um, simply accepting scientific evidence and then arguing about policy ramifications. Right, but, but what, it's, uh, what I find dispiriting about it, other than, of course, that these, these kinds of, this sort of rejection of science, uh, of the best scientific findings, because, you know, as, as you know, in science, all, all findings, especially of that kind of complexity, are always provisional. But nonetheless, as you were saying, there is a very, very broad agreement among the, the, the um, uh, experts in that field that climate change is real. So what I find dispiriting is not just the rejection of science on the part of a community or part of a community that it's allegedly about you know reason and empirical evidence and all that but uh to me that the thing that's particularly disputing is that this is exactly the same attitude that we uh, accuse let's say creationists of indulging in right that, that it's not the creationists are stupid typically I and mean, some of them are but a lot of creationists are very intelligent people and the, the problem is they um start with an ideological presupposition and that simply precludes them it filters out certain kinds of, evi of evidence as a result of that ideological position and it's very interesting to me that um, we have uh, people in our own community who make you know merciless fun of the creationists for doing that and then turn around and do exactly the same thing uh except that the ideology in question is not religious, it's political in, in, in nature. Yes, it was quite a shock to me when we uh, published the results of the uh, latest IPCC uh, report, I think it was 2007, and got lambasted by a number of readers just for simply reporting the, the consensus resort, uh, results of the world climate science community about climate science. Uh, it, it, it surprised me that there were so many such people in our, among our own readers. Uh, but it, 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 it one thing we have to realize is skepticism and the skeptical community is not homogeneous and never has been. So, in a way, I, you have to understand that. But it nevertheless, uh, like you, I was very surprised. I continue to be surprised, although I shouldn't be. I'm not surprised by anything I hear out of the creationist uh, <laughs> community and haven't been for 30 years of doing this. But I, I still, I still find, uh, find myself surprised by some things I hear and some reactions I get from... Uh, otherwise uh, reasonably science-oriented, intelligent people who I respect for their work in other areas of science and skepticism. It's, it's well, a kind of an amazing thing. Well, just to Massimo's previous point, it's, I think it's easy to say, like, well, from, from the outside, it's easy to say, well, you know, look, you're just doing the same thing that, you know, your, your opponents or, the, you know, the creation, creationists are doing. Um, 
but that's always, you know, how it looks from the outside. If you like from within their reasoning, it's very different. You know, sure. the creationists don't have good reasons and they do to reject this, uh, you know, apparent conspiracy consensus. Um, just like from the outside, if you don't already accept that uh, reason and evidence are important ways of deciding what to believe, then it's easy to say, well, look, you're just, you have this blind faith in science, the same way religious people have a blind faith in, in their gods, you know? And, yep. But it's very different from the inside. Uh, obviously, I think the, you know, the people who uh, dismiss the scientific consensus on global warming are wrong. I just don't think it's fair to say that they're wrong because they're following the same pattern as the... Uh, as the people on the other well, side. Well, you know, okay, let's have a little discussion about that because actually I think it is perfectly fair. Um, I mean, you know, if, if, you, if you talk to creationists, as you know, I'm sure Ken has done and I've done for, for, for a long time, uh, you will hear exactly that kind of defense. Uh, you know, they, they'll say, oh, no, no, we, we, have, uh, we have the evidence on our side and we have, we have reason on our side. It's not, this is not just a matter of faith. Uh, now, of course, they don't, but, but, that's, but neither do the climate change deniers. So I really actually fail to see the difference as, as a sort of a structure in their, in their reasoning between the two. Now, of course, there are, uh, there are other kinds of differences. I mean, I think that uh, even though neither climate change nor evolution are reasonably deniable, certainly evolution is far, far less reasonably deniable than climate change. I don't know if there is a, a scale of unreasonability. I think the creationists win on this one. But that's only a matter of quant quantity. I don't think there is a qualitative difference. The dynamics are much the same, of course, uh, and, the, and they're both being influenced by immense propaganda mills uh, that forge their own belief systems and ideological structures. So right. uh, they, they differ because one's religiously uh, influenced and the other is ideologically influenced uh, on political, uh, sort of political social spectrum. Uh, so they're different that way. They're totally different people for the most part, as you know. Uh, but, right. Right. Uh, they're, uh, but the dynamics are, are distressingly uh, similar. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think we disagree that much, actually. I, I just, I thought that Massimo was saying that, you know, well, the mistake that these particular climate science denying skeptics are making is in dismissing evidence the same way the creation, uh, creationists are dismissing evidence. Um, and the, the problem I was trying to point out is just that uh, sometimes it's correct to dismiss evidence if it's bad evidence. Sure. Yes. Uh, so, you know, they think this evidence is bad evidence. I think they're wrong. But like in the end, it always just comes down to the quality of evidence. And it's I, I've just found it hard to come up with any sort of other rule for uh, for for judging whether someone is, you know, uh, is evaluating an issue correctly or not. Um, yeah, no, that, it's that's easy to say, well, you're like listening to the consensus or you're not listening yeah. to the consensus or, you know, you're, uh, yeah, They're, like all the rules that you can use um, will fail in cases where the evidence is bad um, and succeed in cases where the evidence is good. And so it just comes down to like, I disagree with the way they're evaluating this evidence. And it's who you trust, isn't it? Uh, most of the climate contrarians or deniers have enormous distrust of, first of all, government. And much science is funded by the government, including probably most climate science. Many reports are, are governmental, or many of the agencies are governmental. But then, of course, from a scientific point of view, there's nothing unusual about that. The government has sponsored uh, most research in the United States at the frontier level for for a little, well, since World War II, at least. So, um, and then they have distrust of institutions in general, and then they have distrust of science as an institution, uh, and all the while, while accepting other good science. So, right. 
Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's the part that I find very interesting, right? Because uh, first of all, yeah, you can distrust, first of all, you can always distrust the, the sources of funding. Uh, you can say, oh, well, that's, those are climate scientists uh, who are funded by the government. So, of course, they, they uh, go with the line of the government. Yes, but if they were, I don't know, uh, medical researchers funded by Big Pharma, then you would have exactly the same kind of criticism. I mean, the, 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 the source of funding is always, is, can always be a source of criticism, but one needs to sort of separate the idea that uh, it is reasonable to be skeptical of certain sources of funding that doesn't necessarily indict all the research that, in, that is done uh, with that money. I mean, I don't dis- dismiss everything that is done with funding from the pharmaceutical industry just on the basis that it is funded by the pharmaceutical industry. I'm going to be a little more careful, perhaps, uh, taking a look at that research. I want to compare with with research that is done by with other f- sources of funding. But you, you can't. It, it's just too easy to say, well, the money comes from there, so you you must be following uh, that that particular agenda. I mean, you. That can well, apply across the board. But but it is true. I mean, I know Ben Goldacre has published some stats on this uh, in his recent book, Bad Pharma. It, it is true that studies done by pharma are much more likely to show you know, positive, significant effects of their drugs and not to show negative side effects. And, and it's just, I, I, I feel dispirited about how, about our potential to actually accurately, objectively judge the quality of their research given, you know, we don't see the studies that they decided not to publish. Um, we don't see the sort of background choices that they made in, in the methodology. Uh, it's pretty easy to choose methodologies that are, you know, going to be more sympathetic to the position that you want to end up with. So, so I, I actually, I don't know, it's not a terrible heuristic to just uh, pretty much dismiss research funded by the pharmaceutical industry. You know, dismissing research based on who funds it is actually... It's a better or worse heuristic in different cases, um, and I, I just, I keep coming back to the, uh, you know, it's really complicated. And you have to get like many layers of analysis deep before you decide whether this heuristic is actually good or bad in this case. Yes, and of course, uh, the, the vested interests are so are, are very, very strong in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, whereas in the climate science industry, industry, it's very hard to see uh, where, what climate scientists are getting <laughs> yes, rich. I know a lot uh, of uh, climate scientists uh, are disclosing really getting rich the latest stuff. <laughs> well, they want to keep their jobs, right? That's the argument yeah, that uh, right. the climate science deniers make. But uh, yeah. they need this to continue being a problem so that they can keep their yeah. jobs, which is not, I don't know, on the face of it, it doesn't sound like a terrible argument. It's just that doesn't actually seem to be how things work. Well, it, it's not necessarily a terrible argument, except for the fact that climate science has always been well-funded because we care about things like the weather. And so, it, it's, you know, it's not like it started getting funded once that people started making rumors on, on, about climate change. Climate, climate science has always been uh, well-funded. Uh, there are certain areas of research, you know, um, that, that, uh, for instance, fundamental physics, that have always gotten a significant amount of money because people think that those are generally interesting um, area of research. So regardless of, of which particular theories uh, the, the, the scientists working on it, are, are, are espousing. Uh, so yes, you can that's you can point. always question you know the source of funding, but you have to do it in an intelligent way. So that's all I'm saying is you can just say, well, if the funding comes from there, therefore. Um, but but that make, brings me to an, a um, closely related topic, which is you know we were talking earlier on about the fact that um, skepticism can be applied broadly, even more broadly than sort of strictly scientific, of course, um, th- subject matter. It can also be applied to science itself, and of course, people who are skeptical of, of sort of climate change, uh, uh, they think that they're applying sound 
profound skepticism to some claims made by scientists. Now, there is a venerable tradition of skepticism of certain claims of science. You know, if you go back all the way to the beginning of the 20th century, before there was any such a thing as a skeptical movement, uh, there were people who were critical of uh, what at the time was mainstream science, for instance, in the field of eugenics. Um, today, there are uh, a number of people who are skeptical of at least some claims made by, uh, say, evolutionary psychologists, for instance, or, or uh, of some research on, uh, ba- on the neurological basis of neurobiological basis of gender differences or race differences, things like that. So there's always that kind of skepticism. But can, and, and can I know that the Skeptical Inquirer has published um, articles, including some of my own columns, actually, about these kind of topics. But do you think that that is one of the areas where skepticism has been growing sort of broadly over the last several years, you know, moving away from or, or, or expanding, I should say, from UFOs, parapsychology, Nassim, Bigfoot? Well, yes, we, but, but we have uh, uh, continually broadened our scope in the Skeptical Inquirer, applying skepticism to more and more areas. But, but it's not new. Even, even uh, when we started, we had the name Paranormal in our name and in our mission. But Paul Kurtz, our founder, uh, pointed out uh, that, that it wasn't that we were interested in just the paranormal curiosity shop, but our main goal was to increase an understanding of how science works. So from the very beginning, he and others of us all understood that um, while in the 70s when we started here, there was an enormous uh, public uh, fascination and acceptance of a wide variety of paranormal claims, uh, no doubt about that. And that is probably what inst- that is definitely what instigated our, our committee's uh, founding in 1976, and I joined in 77. Uh, uh, but we always have uh, seen, seen a, a broader role of educating the public about the methods of science, about what good scientific thinking is, and applying that kind of thinking to uh, a, a number of broader issues. Uh, we've dealt with, uh, in, in columns uh, in the magazine, with uh, uh, research into uh, why uh, gay and lesbian, into trans and global violence, into obesity, into economic fraud, into gender issues in science, uh, whether uh, morality is innate, uh, uh, and all sorts of other things. Yeah. That's, a, that's a very broad uh, range of topics. And uh, the, the question sometimes, I mean, and I find it fascinating. I mean, as you know, I, I actually support the broadening of, of uh, sort of topics of interest to skeptics. There is an, an interesting issue there, however, and that is an issue of sort of competence, basically. Oh, yes. Uh, right? So, uh, and let me, let me explain it this way. I, I'd like to, ta- to have your take on this, but let me explain uh, what I mean. Um, if we're talking about you know, sort of classical, let's call it classical skepticism, like paranormal investigations, NASI, uh, UFOs, etc. In that area, it seems to me that skeptics, uh, most of whom are obviously not full-time skeptics, although there are, there are, there are a few, but, but skeptical investigators have actually carved out a unique area of expertise that I would say easily trumps the area of the, the expertise of scientists in those in those areas. I mean, a, a typical scientist, for instance, could be fooled by you know a magician uh, uh, performing an allegedly paranormal, paranormal uh, uh, trick, or it could be fooled and by they a, have and they have been, or it could be fooled by a particularly well done you know UFO fake and so on and so forth. Uh, and that is because, despite the fact that they're scientists, they're not you know their expertise, their their know how, it's not in those areas. While skeptics have built over decades uh, expertise in those areas, so there I think there's very little controversy about the fact that skeptics um, out 
as non-scientists have a special uh, expertise. Now, when it comes, however, to some of the issues that you mentioned, the thing becomes more complicated, right? Because, for instance, uh, uh, if we're talking about things like, you know, uh, the, the, the realism in, uh, in, in, in moral philosophy, well, that's a huge field where there's, of course, professional philosophers talking about it. Or if you're talking about, uh, you know, scientific claims uh, from neurobiology, well, that's a, a huge field where there are actual neurobiologists uh, going at it. So what, what's, what's your take in terms of sort of the, the, uh, the role of expertise in, in these areas? Uh, you're, you're exactly right. Um, and I think what we do in some of these areas is kind of go along and then dip into an area and, and, and report on it and report on both sides of, the, of controversies that are within the science of that area and uh, then go on to another one. I don't think we have uh, broad-based competence in every area of science. We have always uh, pretty much left to the scientific community uh, major issues within each scientific field that every scientific field has major controversies going on at any given time. Uh, generally, those, those are of interest to us when they become a matter of public interest and when, the, and when things get skewed and when the understanding of them gets uh, 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 strangely out of kilter uh, in, in for the public. So, generally, I think we reserve ourselves for those kinds of things. But we nevertheless uh, kind of troll around uh, science and scientific issues and dip into <laughs> them uh, every now and then and give a picture of, of real scientific controversy in certain areas of science. But you are right. Our core competence is always going to be the areas uh, that were what you might call a classical skepticism. But nevertheless, uh, most scientists and scholars have uh, a broad way of thinking and 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 they're thinking and applying scientific principles and ideas to issues and controversies uh, that may be of interest to the public. I think are worthwhile and valuable. Uh, so, they so always are. You know, we have to have a bit of humility always about it because no, nobody is uh, an expert on everything, and nobody uh, is always right. So, Ken, I have a different concern than Massimo. Oh, actually, I agree with Massimo's concern. I have an additional concern. Uh, <laughs> about broadening the area of, of uh, skeptic focus, um, although I'm also totally in favor of, of broadening it in various ways. So my concern, especially as there's been increasing discussion in the last year or two about um, skeptics focusing on social issues and sort of moral issues and issue, issues of values of how our society should be structured and how we should treat each other, etc., um, my concern has just been that it's, it can be really difficult to extricate the empirical questions and the, the questions of reasoning from the questions of values. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I can just give an example uh, in case anyone's not clear on what I'm talking about. So... Um, now be careful what you pick. <laughs> oh, God, I know, right? So this is the other problem that it can like turn no, no, go skeptical ahead. discussions into a minefield. Go uh, ahead, pick, pick, so pick at your heart content. A relatively uncontroversial topic of gender and evolutionary psychology. Ah. Um, so you know, there's there's various uh, evolutionary psychology studies, uh, or I don't know if you could call them studies, theories, maybe some studies about um, why. Uh, the genders behave the way they do, why they think the way they do, you know, the degree to which there are actually differences in um, the sort of experiences of the genders um, in the human species. And so there are definitely empirical questions there. And there's, there's like really interesting 
uh, sort of intellectually chewy meat there about uh, methodology and what makes a theory uh, worth what 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 means we should take a ser- theory seriously, like can it be tested? And that's a totally relevant question for the field of evolutionary psychology. Um, so there are those empirical questions, and then there are questions of reasoning that often come up in these discussions, like people making arguments either explicitly or implicitly, like, well, you know, it has always been the case that, uh, you know, the men are the uh, sexual predators and the women are, you know, sexually passive or something. I don't, I don't even know if that's actually empirically true, but, but even if it were empirically true, uh, that doesn't mean that therefore we should continue to arrange our societies that way. That's the naturalistic fallacy. Um, so that's actually a case if skeptics were to focus on reasoning like that, in which skepticism might be different from science, that it might actually be legitimate to make that a role of skepticism to point out problems in people's reasoning when they try to apply science to questions of how we should live. Um, and so that's sort of gray area for me. Maybe skeptics should be doing that. And then the then the area that makes me more concerned is the area of values, when we're talking not about you know how to reason about the scientific results, but just about our our sort of moral and um, and ideological preferences for how we should run our society. Like, should we prioritize more uh, making sure that women always feel safe and prioritize less men's freedom to approach women? Or should we prioritize more, you know, giving uh, rights to transgender people um, and what kinds of rights, etc.? And those aren't really questions I feel that skepticism has much to say about. Those are questions of values. I think most skeptics would agree with you and feel uncomfortable getting into those areas. Uh, some don't. Some some are, are just like to wade into those issues, uh, just uh, like uh, anyone else uh, uh, who has strong opinions might. But uh, skepticism is, is, is not, uh, doesn't deal, just like science itself doesn't deal with values, but with evidence. Uh, we tend to pretty much have to leave it to others to deal with value-laden issues. Um, but of course, they come at us from every direction, don't they? And, and uh, <laughs> they, they hit us uh, when we're least expecting it, uh, uh, value uh, controversies. So, it, it can be a minefield. Uh, I think skeptics mostly have tried to stay out of such things. Of course, we haven't even talked about religion yet. Religion is right. the <laughs> biggest one of all. And, uh, you know, uh, skeptical groups have their own uh, discussions and arguments about the role of religion and what the role of skepticism about it. Uh, we deal mainly with empirical claims in the Skeptical Inquirer and the Committee of the Skeptical Inquiry. But uh, we go a little bit beyond that, but not not heavily into just critiques of religion and uh, promotion of atheism. That's, that's not our, our role. And yet, that was uh, since you brought it up, and uh, it was next on my list of topics anyway. <laughs> that that was uh, that that's that's been a controversy even in the, in the past of organizations connected with um, skeptical inquiry. I mean, even even Paul Kurz himself uh, has been involved in these these kind of discussions about you know to what extent uh, should skeptical inquiry, for instance, uh, treat claims about religion? Uh, you know, because one can make the argument um, that. Um, even when those claims are not directly empirical, uh, they do go at the core of, you know, are, are there reasons to believe X? And, you know, some of the reasons for believing X can be empirical, but they may also be sort of logical. And uh, so from one perspective, one can argue, well, religion shouldn't be outside of, of the 
scope of skeptical inquiry because it does deal with, in part, with factual claims about, you know, the age of Earth or something like that, uh, and in part about sort of logical claims such as the nature of gods and things like that. But there's also another way of looking at the same thing, uh, which is, well, you can make a distinction between, you know, a creationist who does make a claim that is demonstrably false on empirical grounds, the Earth is 6,000 years old, and a you know a person who says, well, there may be a, a, a intelligence uh, that at some point had something to do with the creation of the universe, but that's about all I'm going to say um, on on, the, on that ground. That seems much more remote from any kind of certainly empirically based criticism. So that is that been part of the, the sort of the, the, the lines along the discussion in, in in the past. Well, Paul Kurtz, of course, uh, had had two sets of views. But he always strongly uh, supported the idea that the skeptical inquirer's uh, involvement with religion should be where there are empirical claims. Towards the end of his last maybe 10 years of life, he broadened that out broader. And, and uh, I, I, th- I, I nevertheless think if you, even if you limit it to empirical claims, uh, that allows a large amount of leeway for skeptics and skepticism to uh, uh, elucidate uh, and, and analyze uh, the deficiencies and, and problems in, in religious belief. Uh, I think it's a very broad area that there's still a lot of meat in for skeptics without getting into just uh, uh, anger at people who who are religious, or, or, or that, that's not what we're going to do. Right. But of course, Paul always had a whole another organization to deal with those issues yep. uh, that he also founded. So he had the committee <laughs> for skeptical inquiry, for skepticism, and evidence based uh, analysis of empirical claims, and the uh, Council for Secular Humanism to deal with issues of religion and and social values. Uh, uh, we've sort of brought those two together in, in the overall arching organization Center for Inquiry, but we are still trying to maintain the two separate brands and two separate identities of these organizations, Committee for Skeptical Inquiry and the Council for Secular Humanism. Mm-hmm. Ken, are there new frontiers uh, that you wish skeptics would branch out into um, that so far there hasn't been much movement towards? Because we don't have enough to do so far, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've been involved in this all these decades, and I've never, ever had an issue where we had uh, one blank page. Uh, I've never had had, uh, any problem uh, uh, dealing with, uh, you know, having no controversy ahead of us to deal with. I've never had had, uh, uh, all issues settled. so I don't know. Tell me what you're thinking of. Uh, uh, there are always going to be new ones, but but the thing that always surprises me is how the old ones keep popping up under <laughs> under new names and with new language and with new sets of believers, and and, uh, and it's all new to them. But uh, we realize it's all the same as it was uh, 30 years ago, or 40 years ago, or 100 years ago. Uh, I guess if I had to pick an area that it certainly hasn't been totally unexplored, but uh, but if I could pick an it as you know a new area of focus for for the skeptics it would be uh lobbying not just to um keep alternative medicine and creationism out of you know mainstream schools and uh and popular talk shows etc but also lobbying to improve the scientific method um so this would be lobbying not just the public um but the scientific community try to find solutions for things like publication bias, um, you know, the file drawer effect where, uh, 
you know, we don't get to see papers that uh, didn't find a significant result, and so the significance testing is skewed. Or possibly things like transparency and peer review, um, or or possibly issues of science communication to the public um, in fields like nutrition, where there's, uh, because of the structure of the field and the nature of the claims being investigated, there's more false positives than you would get in a typical field, um, making that clear in science reporting. Um, This seems like something, I don't know if this is something that skeptics should do. There might be competency issues, as Massimo mentioned, um, and maybe it's just not our comparative advantage in terms of strength. But this is something I wish more people, I wish there was more attention going towards. So it might be something that skeptics could uh, could valuably contribute to. Some skeptics are dealing with those issues. Uh, alternative medicine is is has become just a huge uh, topic now in the last uh, 20 years. When we started, there, you know, it was just called uh, quackery or something like that. <laughs> now we give it this uh, ge- name that gives it uh, false uh, gentility, uh, alternative medicine. I like that phrase. Uh, but I, I don't think we, we need to go along with that anymore. We need to accept what uh, Dr. Paul Offit says, and he says there's no such thing as alternative or, or uh, complementary or any of these kinds of medicine. There's just uh, medicine that works and medicine that doesn't work. <laughs> Coincidentally, Paul Offit is going to be our, our next guest on the podcast. Oh. Yep. <laughs> uh, but actually, the, the, Julia's point is interesting. I, I would add one more to my wish list that I've also seen occasionally treated, but not, but not much. And those are uh, claims made by economists. Uh, Economics is a hugely important discipline, and there's major rifts within the the, the discipline itself. You know, there's classical economics, there's different schools of classical economics for that matter, Uh, then there's behavioral economics, and some of these claims are clearly, obviously, empirical in nature, and some of them are methodological, you know, it's in terms of epistemic warrant and all that. So those are actually, and and they clearly affect all of us. You you can't get away from it. So so that's another area where I would like to see some, obviously, again, there's there's the issue of expertise. I mean, it's not, it's not like just anybody can do it, but but that's that's beginning to be the case, I think, in general for a lot of cutting edge skeptic um, topics. You, you, you need you need people who actually know what they're talking about in terms of specific expertise in exactly. a particular area. So uh, uh, I'm looking for someone to do an article on just those kind of issues. A good good friend of mine who's president of a company and a skeptic and a reader of Skeptical Inquirer uh, sent me an email just last week uh, making exactly the same point you just did with a, as a very specific example example he gave of some nonsense and in economics that uh, need uh, uh, skeptical analysis and uh, uh, <laughs> exposure, just like we do with so many other issues. If you do that, be prepared to, to receive an avalanche of, of letters. Yeah, <laughs> As a result. that was also going to be my comment. <laughs> I don't want to get into a new issue like this without knowing, and, and this is not an area I feel comfortable mm-hmm. uh being an editor of certainly the, the climate science one, I was very comfortable with that as a science writer and editor because I first wrote my first article about uh, climatology back in my science news, my very first year in science news, so a long time ago before all these recent furos started going. So I've seen the whole evolution and history of that controversy and understand I understand it fairly well. Uh, a lot of other areas I don't feel competent in uh, to so, but then that's true. Without that's why we have uh, fellows and consultants right. and experts who uh, who who are specialists in, in various areas, right. and we we have many many areas covered. 
Before we, we wrap it up, I, I have one of those um, you know, somewhat silly who is your favorite kind of question because this is a question that is, that is often posed to me and that is you know, who do I think are or sort of broadly speaking the most influential skeptics or skeptics that people should read or be aware of and all that. And my answer typically is uh, David Hume, Bertrand Rassen and, and Carl Sagan in no particular order. Uh, if you were asked that kind of question, which I'm sure actually some, plenty of people probably have asked you, what, 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 would you, what, what names would you bring in? Well, uh, I was heavily influenced by uh, some of the same. Martin Gardner, yes. Isaac Asimov, right. and Carl Sagan were my uh, intellectual uh, mentors and inspiring uh, uh, gurus, I guess, uh, from the very beginning. Uh, but uh, Paul Kurtz has been a, an enormous inspiration to me throughout his entire life. He died just a year ago, as you know, yes, and uh, was a prolific writer and editor and a, a very interesting scholar, a very pragmatic philosopher. So I would recommend uh, his writings. And uh, uh, oh, there are so many, but that, Mark- that's a pretty good group, uh, actually. Uh, Julia, what, what would, you're the, the, the sort of the next generation. Uh, what, what would you say? What, what are the most influential skeptics for you? Oh, goodness. Um, (laughs) uh, Probably the most influential for me is going to be a different uh, question than the the ones I would recommend to, like, the average person asking me that question. That's a good question. But let's say say you're you're the most influential for you. um, uh, I'd probably put Ben Goldacre on that list. Really? Okay. Um, Yeah. I, I think he... Uh, significantly contributed to changing the way I think about research, about medical research, well, especially about drugs. Um, And he also introduced me to some important concepts about scientific methodology that I wasn't aware of. Um, I mean, I knew about publication bias, but he he was the one who introduced me to ways of measuring or sort of estimating the the magnitude of publication bias in, in various fields. I don't I don't think he invented the notion, but no, he certainly right. he's done a great job of popularizing it and uh and I I think his level of uh like the level of sophistication in his writing is uh like just about the right level for me in terms of stuff that I like to read popularly, blog posts, articles and books. Mm-hmm. Um it's like rich with sort of analysis and statistics while still being conversational. Um, so that that's like a you know a direction that I, yeah. I like to see the skeptics go w- one in. One more name before we wrap it up. Uh, Martin Gardner. Right. Um, I wrote a blog post about that actually uh, on on the occasion of his death. Uh, but he was his aha books when I was a kid were uh, like really influential in getting me to see math as this like intriguing cool fun uh field of like puzzles and paradoxes and uh that uh certainly helped contribute to put me on the path that i ended up on and with my statistics major martin uh, there would never be another person quite like martin gardner and and it was his his book fads and fallacies in the name of science which i uh, was given as a president in graduate school and read and was just blown away by it and then uh, later, when I was editor of Science News, he wrote to me and complained about some articles we did about uh, Yuri Geller and uh, a few other uh, 1970s New Age topics. And that led to my inviting him to t- telling him, we need a group of people like you to help us science writers and editors uh, understand the correct facts on these issues. So uh, Martin was an enormous uh, uh, inspiration to me. 
And then, of course, we uh, published him for many years in the Skeptical Inquirer. What a what a wonderful person. Indeed. All right. Well, let's wrap up the segment of the podcast and move on to the Rationally Speaking Picks. Welcome back. Every episode, we pick a suggestion for our listeners that has uh, tickled our rational fancy. This time, we ask our guest, Ken Fraser, for his suggestion. Ken? Well, I pick uh, the book Brainwashed, uh, The Seductive Appeal of Mindless Neuroscience by Sally Sattel, uh, psychiatrist, and Scott O'Lillianfeld, a, a psychologist and uh, one of our colleagues and a member of the executive council of CSI. Uh, it's a very, very interesting uh, book. I think timely, uh, a psychiatrist and a psychologist present needed scientific perspective about the often overhyped or even faddish current popular interest in neuroscience. Uh, now, uh, they, they caution uh, against overinterpretation of brain scans and simplistic arguments about their meaning. Uh, they question over-reliance on brain-based interpretations of behavior, which they call neurocentrism. Uh, they examine the what they call neural marketing of new technologies, and uh, they consider the legal implications of modern neuroscience. And I found this to be a, a balanced inquiry into how how many real-world applications of neuroscience can obscure rather than clarify the, the many factors that shape our identity and behavior. Now, and, and this isn't this isn't a, a negative book about neuroscience. It's a negative about over over the over hyping of especially in the public arena of certain uh, uh, ramifications of brain scans and misunderstandings about uh, what uh, what what the new scientific imagery can tell us and not and what isn't reliable about the, the those images so uh it's a really interesting book i recommend it that sounds excellent i've uh i've been really pleased to see more uh discussion of sort of the theoretical or methodological problems with neuroscience filtering into the mainstream media in the last i don't know year or two i feel like it's been a noticeable uptick in the, in the last year or so thanks i guess in part to books like this yes uh, we're going to publish an excerpt of it in, in, in the next skeptical inquire so our readers will be able to to see what we're talking about there very cool well ken it's been a pleasure having you on the show uh and and thank you so much for your amazing work for the last 30 years as the editor of skeptical inquire and uh uh pioneer of the skeptic movement. Here's to another 30. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks, Ken. This concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening. <laughs>